So, I'd like to say I was a genius, but I wasn't. You All I did is I looked to spread. So we're, we're talking about this lovely thing called healthcare, and you're in the, you're in the TPA business, what, 40 years? 50, do we want to admit how long? Uh, 1975, so I guess that's, uh, what, 55 years? No, 45 years, 45 years. So you jump into this lovely thing called healthcare, and you figure, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat this game, or what? What are, what are we thinking when we get into this TPA side? No, actually, what happened was an accident. Oh, I had a life brokerage operation, and one of my life brokers, we did business insurance, called me one day and he said, we could write an awful lot of life insurance, key man insurance on a publicly held American Stock Exchange listed company, but they were just informed, and this is a long time ago, this is 1975, they were informed that they got a 63% rate increase on their group health insurance program from the previous year. They were insured by a company called um, Banker's Life of Iowa, now Principal Financial. Anyway, he said, I understand you have a benefits background, and I did. That's where I was trained out of college in benefits. And he said, would you help me work on this? And he said, I'll put all of my life business through your agency. And I said, great. ERISA was passed in 1974, which enabled employers to self-insure in any state in the United States and not be considered being in the insurance business without an insurance company. See, prior to that time, if you insured anything or paid benefits, you had to be licensed as an insurance company, which meant capitalization, surplus, and all sorts of things. This enabled employers to simply design a plan, put out a plan document, and avoid state insurance regulation. And since it was federal law, the thing that a lot of people don't realize, not only do states not have authority over a self-insured plan, but the self-insured plan for an employer located in Illinois could establish their plan as a trust in Nevada, Texas, Florida, wherever. The situs of the plan does not necessarily have to be where the employer's business is located. Okay. Do insurance commissioners of states like that? No. So you're saying we can, we can situs groups in other states with the trust and not follow those state guidelines. Now, I don't, you know, when Affordable Care Act, I know some of the bookers were saying, listen, you've got to have the company domiciled and payroll in that state, and you can't go around the guidelines. Well, that's fully insured. Remember the- No, 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 they had an ASO. So like yeah. a company like New York, when we had problems, when New York changed 100 minimum for the state, we were looking ways to, hey, let's put them in, yeah. you got locations out here. And I said, no, you can't do it unless your payroll. Here's there. the threat. The regulators, the insurance commissioners, have an awful lot of authority on how they regulate health plans and regulate insurance companies, not self-funded, self-insured health plans. So if you antagonize a government bureaucrat and they find out that you're attempting to skirt some of their state legislation by legally 
subsidizing the trust in a state that's much friendlier, mm. all right? When you try to get other things accomplished that require their approval in that state, they have the ability to deny Kill that. the deal. So as a result, it's an implicit threat. It's not a direct threat. An employer can set up their, their trust anywhere in the United States that they want to. It's a federal law. The federal law RISA says that an employer can self-insure without being considered in the business of insurance. Doesn't say you have to self-insure in your state or in a specific state. The problem is the threat of the bureaucrats. They always have. And the, and the bukas are going to play into the role. Oh, well, the bukas are, yes, yeah. absolutely. But from an independent standpoint, we have more flexibility and we don't have to follow those safety. We don't. But again, the carrier that you're dealing with for stop laws has to get licensed and approved in whatever state they want their licensing to be able to sell business. Okay. All right. And again, if an insurance commissioner, let's use an example, and it's not a real example, but let's say the insurance commissioner in Arkansas finds out that a carrier, XYZ insurance company, is writing employer stop loss for an Arkansas employer, but legally citing it in Texas, they might either on their product, which has to be licensed and approved, the stop loss product, or in another supplementary product, deny the approval. So they do have control. It's an implicit control. So as this arrest is passed, it says, employers are looking for a better way to manage the expense of healthcare on their own, like they control their components of their business, instead of saying, hey, insurance company XYZ, you, you manage this expense for me. Yes. Now employers are saying, hey, I, I'm gonna do this on my own. Well, and the insurance companies, when they function as an ASO, they're gonna pretty much adhere to state mandates within the state in which they do business. Because they do have so much fully insured business they don't want to play. They also don't have a lot of flexibility in plan design because they have antiquated systems, legacy computer systems, and they don't want to go through an entire computer conversion and significant dollar expenditure to help an employer design a unique plan. So that's the, that's the area where the third party administrator has been a threat to the carrier ASO. All third party administrators, whether they take advantage of it or not, have the ability to do flexible things that better meet an employer's needs than a carrier ASO. So now you've got these, this TPA, you're gonna, you're gonna work to, to, to control and manage healthcare as an employer expense, and you're the play for them to do that. So you get into risk management, and you get into this industry and you're now coming up with solutions and ideas on how are we gonna manage this healthcare spend? First, let me say, I would love to say that I thought about this and had it all thought through before I became a TPA. That's not exactly how it happened. It happened because when this employer, this American Stock Exchange listed employer got the rate increase and I assisted a broker in the Houston area in working on it, I said, wait a second, why can't they partially self-insure, even though there is no such thing legally? You're either self-insured or you're fully insured. You're either regulated at the state level or regulated at the federal level through ERISA. What I did is I went out and I looked for a high deductible health plan. And high deductible back then 
was $500 or $1,000. Because every plan, every employer had a $100 calendar year deductible plan. So I went to a couple of carriers, Phoenix Mutual being one of them at the time, and they came back with a quote. And to go from a $100 deductible to a $500 deductible back then, their rates were reduced by 55%. So I'd like to say I was a genius, but I wasn't. You're All I did is that. I looked the spread and I said, wait a second. If we were to reimburse 80% after $100 to get to the 500, that would be a maximum reimbursement of $320 per member in any year, calendar year deductible. So I divided 320 into the savings and I actually had to have more people get sick than existed in the group. It was a no-brainer. I went in to present it. Had no idea what a third-party administrator was. Presented with a broker. The employer said, God, I love these numbers. The logic is unquestioned. I don't want to do it. And I said, why don't you want to do it? He was a CFO. He said, because I don't want to be the person to deny a claim. I don't know how to pay claims. We build apartment complexes, that's what we do. So, spur of the moment decision. I said, what if I perform that function for you? And I have to tell you, because it's funny. He asked, have you ever paid a claim before? I said, no, <laughs> I never have. As a matter of fact, I can tell you that I looked over the shoulder of a claims payer in training school at Mass Mutual. That was it. But I can hire somebody to do that. And then he, <laughs> then he asked the CFO question, well, how much are you going to charge me to do that? I had no idea. I mean, I didn't have anybody in my office. I had two assistants to do life insurance quotes for brokers. <laughs> so he said, I need a number. I said, $5 an employee a month. He said, where'd you get that number? And I said, you don't want to know what orifice I pulled it out of. <laughs> So he said, you're on. I said, for when? This was in September of 1975. He said, October 1st, that's when our renewal rates come in effect. So within a matter of less than a month, I became something which I found out later they called a TPA. In February of 76, I wrote a 300 life group in Texas area with another broker and went to the first SPBA meeting, which is the Society of Professional Benefit Administrators, a year after they formed. So I wasn't in the first year, which was 75. I went in 76. And that's when somebody said to me, oh, you must be a TPA. And I looked at him and said, what is that? <laughs> so I guess I was a TPA. By that meeting, I had about six accounts with different brokers around the area. It was an extremely difficult sale. Why? Not because it was illogical, not because the numbers didn't work. It was a difficult sale because I was the only one doing it. And I had one of my brokers who did a lot of life business with me. And I called him up and said, I got, his name was Clayton. I said, Clayton, I have a great idea for you to sell group insurance to some of your big life insurance corporations. And he said, what? I said, self-insured. And in his Texas drawl, he said, Ed, it's a two-syllable word, Ed, I'm in the insurance business. I don't tell people not to insure. 
And that was the mindset back then. How could it be insurance if you're self-insuring? And I'm an insurance agent. Anyway, time went on. And then I made a call on a 400 Life group with another broker in town. The gentleman was a Holocaust survivor. His name was Mr. Prohler, and he came to this country from a concentration camp. His family was killed. He had the numbers on his arm. And he started a scrap metal business, which became Prohler Steel, which at the time was a pretty well-known local company. And he was insured with Aetna on a fully insured plan for his employees. And the broker brought me in, we're sitting there talking, and I, he asked me an interesting question. He said, how can I self-insure? And I explained how ERISA worked and that basically in the formula, you're really self-insured anyway because your claims determine your premium. So he said, well, tell me something, son, in his broken accent. He said, how do you compare it to Aetna, my insurance company? Remember, at the time I had six accounts. And I said, Mr. Prohler, all due respect, if there was an elephant in the room and there was a gnat on the elephant's butt, we would be smaller than the gnat. <laughs> and he said, and I didn't get the account, okay? I got it four years later when the pressure and the, the environment was right. He was an excellent businessman. He all, I'll tell you for the benefit of this audience, a lesson I'll never forget. I asked him because I love this business because you learn and you ask questions. Every time you meet with a prospect, it's like obtaining an MBA. You get knowledge if you'll ask them how they got in business. And Mr. Prohler, who was worth millions at the time that I was talking to him, said to me, he said, the key to success in business is to make 1%. And I said, 1%. He said, yes, you buy for a dollar, you sell for two, you make 1% and you'll always be okay. <laughs> so may you rest in peace, Mr. Prohler, great lesson. Anyway, when it came to TPA fees, I had no idea whether I was making money or not. Yeah, at what point, I mean, it kind of reminds me of when I got in the landscaping business, I'd go up with a pen and pad, I'd say, $30. And I'd find out later if I lost money or not, because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. That's what the business was. By 1977, two years later, I spawned my first competitor. Some brokers that had done business with me decided they'd like to go into this business. And they were gentlemen, by the way, and very good friends. Cowboys. One is now a uh, mystery writer in Galveston, Texas. He's a published writer. But they came to me and they said, Ed, we love what you're doing. We think we'd like to do it. We're not gonna take the accounts that we've placed with you until renewal. And I said, that's fair, and I understand. Well, what was interesting, what I didn't realize is that the more competition, the easier it became for all of us. Because it wasn't like Mr. Prolo only heard the like, story from me, he heard it from two or three others. It's like Elon Musk, you know, he talks about with, with his, you know, his solar, product is like, listen, I want to, I'd rather have a, a, a smaller piece of a big pie right. than, than a big piece of no pie. That's right. And that's why he leases out all that's his right. technology. Mm -hmm. So same principle. By 1980, we probably had 60 employers and I would say 
five competitors that were domiciled in the Houston metropolitan area. I want to give you an, a, a real simple old guy lesson, because as you get older, you observe things that reflect on life itself. See that plant? Yeah. That plant on the right and that dead plant on the left were planted at the same time. They're the same plant. And it's interesting that one is thriving and the other one is virtually dead. They have the same sun exposure. They were given the same nutrients. Why is that? Survival it's a, of the fittest? It's survival of the fittest. It's adaptability. One adapted and one did not. They were purchased the same day. So the lesson to be learned, I think, from the plants is both of them had the same environment. One of them thrived and one of them died. Okay. I can't tell you why one did it and one didn't. I can relate it to the TPA business. When I, when I started with a $5 per employee fee, did I know I was making money? No, I didn't. Did I realize the flexibility of self-funding immediately? No, I didn't. What I did is I used a medical reimbursement plan as a way to cut the cost because frankly, the insurance industry didn't rate. They, did, they allowed way too much discount to go from a $100 deductible to a 500. The actuary said, if we use a $500 deductible, then that's gonna change behavior and it will reduce costs by 55%. So it's not but then I came in and I bought their $500 deductible rates, but I didn't change behavior. The plan to the employees looked exactly as it looked before. So, this, so actuarially, their thought is not only, it's not just a math thing, because I would look at it and say, why is it that they're giving me such a reduction in premium and we're not even taking on that much risk? So their thought is, we're going to change human behavior, which That's is right. like the high deductible health plans that right. still exist today. That's right. Which is why I want to get into one of your strategies, family monthly budgeting deductible that's so creative and, and nobody's thought of it. You've been doing it how many years now? 45. So let's talk about it. So you come up with this idea and say, there's a better way to do this instead of raising deductibles. It's not changing human behavior. Right. You're leading to what we've created years ago, and we call it the family monthly deductible. It was revolutionary. You... It really was. How I found it, I, I didn't invent it directly. I found it. I was with Mass Mutual for two years, and I was an understudy in a two-man office in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was given the opportunity to take over a failing office that had had five experienced group men in it four years, and all of them demanded to be transferred out because they couldn't make a living. Here we were, a major insurance company. We had nobody that could make a living in Kansas City in the group office, but Aetna had 12 people in Kansas City selling group health insurance. Connecticut General, now Cigna, had people. Businessmen's assurance, why weren't we making it? Well, there's an interesting thing that you have to realize as a broker, for example. If a carrier has little or no business in an area, their actuaries don't know what the experience is that would be generated by that business, so they tend to be conservative in their manual rates. Mass Mutual's manual rates, because we weren't writing business, were 20% higher 
than all of our competition. I didn't find that out until I got down there and I moved my family down in 1966. Walked into the office, my predecessor, who was taking a very successful office over in Omaha, Nebraska, right down the road, said, good luck, kid. Well, when I went out to call on brokers and I got spreadsheeted, everybody said, Ed, your rates are 20% higher or better than anybody else on the spreadsheet. And I'll be damned if I was going to fail. So I started a good group representative who will play a rate manual like he's playing a Stradivarius. You've got to maximize the sound that comes out of that instrument. Well, I'm going through the rate book, and a you know, $100 deductible, and you get this percentage credit if you do 150 and you get this additional credit for 200 None of it was appealing. I can't walk in to equal the rates of the competition with a $250 deductible when they have a $100 deductible. And then I come along, I see in the manual something that they had not discussed ever in the training class. It said $25 family monthly deductible. I'd never heard of it before. And I spent six months in the home office with seven other guys are in the training class, never brought it up. So I called the vice president of underwriting at the home office. And I said, what is a family monthly deductible? He said, I have no idea. What are you talking about? I said, pull your manual open. Go to page whatever, 85. What is that? He said, I have no idea. We've never sold one. I said, well, how does it work? He said, I don't know. I said, can you check it out for me? Because I've used the rating manual, and if I'm doing it correctly, I want to be able to market this. It comes in price competitive. So he calls me back a couple days later. He said, well, the actuary that created it is no longer with the company. Nobody's ever sold one. We, I said, well, is it filed and approved in all states, particularly Kansas and Missouri? He said, yes, it is. I said, great. I'm going to sell one. Send me a certificate so I could read how it worked. It made sense to me. Still does. And did that give you a competitive advantage where you were able to go out it, to compete where you were higher rates, rate? My rates for a $25 family monthly deductible compared to a $100 calendar year deductible were comparable. So if I was on the spreadsheet, I was right in the middle there with everybody else. They had a $100 calendar year deductible, three per person. I had a $25 monthly deductible. And for the person who has an occasional acute occurrence, an appendectomy, when they went into the hospital, they had a $25 deductible instead of 100 We could say, wait a second, how does that save money? Because in the next calendar month, they had another $25 deductible. And the month after that. And it all caps out at the same max. $300. For the year. For the year. So what it did is I learned from a movie that a lot of you have never even heard of about a lady named Gypsy Rose Lee. Gypsy Rose Lee was a stripper. She was played in the movie by Natalie Wood, one of the most gorgeous actresses ever. Anyway, Natalie Wood played a young girl in the Depression who was trying to help her family make money, and she did it by trying to become a stripper. She ended up in some small town at a burlesque show. Stripping was different back then. It was an art. It wasn't just nudity. She's in the dressing room, and three older women who were strippers took her under wing to mentor her. And they said, and there was a song, it was a musical, and the song was, you've got to have a gimmick. One of the strippers used electric lights up and down her body, and they flickered. So when she did her dance, she had lights. Another one used a bugle. And I was probably, I don't know, 17 years old when I saw the movie, and I realized something. 
if you're going to interest someone, you have to have a gimmick. They call it now in today's world, they call it peacocking. That's, well, that's it. I Put a cowboy hat on, baby. That's it. Stand out. Well, what the family monthly deductible did for me was it made me different from everybody else. So when all of my competition was here hocking their $100 calendar year deductible, at the same rate, I could say, I'll reduce your deductible to 25% of what it is for most people who have a once-in-a-year occurrence. And I'll do it at the same rate. And all of a sudden, every competitive environment, I had a 50-50 shot at each deal. So you were, Everybody you else were like was here, and I was stripper. there. That's it. You turned into a sexy stripper. That's the way it works. <laughs> and you know something? What was interesting is that behavioral change, just that difference of $75. But the fact that if you the new calendar month started, there was another deduct, it changed behavior. People... Sure. Did they abuse it? Is, do you call it abuse when somebody gets everything taken care of in one calendar month so they don't have to have another it's, it's, deductible? So, so let's, say, let's look at that. So you talk about human behavior, and you told me the story that you explained to an employer. Is it, Why is it that those deductibles, the high deductibles and stuff didn't work because of human behavior with the family monthly fixed? Because I always say, is how is you able to price it actuarially a third of what the typical deductible is? Because of the behavioral impact. Believe me, I had a hard time selling, real hard time selling carriers, stop-loss carriers, in setting their aggregate on the value of a family monthly deductible. In fact, Hobson Carroll, an actuary, argued with me. He said, wait a second. Now people aren't going to spend $100. They're going to spend $25. That's going to increase claims costs because the industry is run and the rate manuals are created by actuaries. They deal with empirical reality empirical numbers. Behavioral change is not empirical. You can't measure it as, at least in the past, they couldn't measure it. Every carrier I approached said, well, if you'll give us some of your existing business so we could look at the experience, we'll try and figure out how to rate this under our manual. And I said, wait a second, that's an interesting thing. I have business partners in the form of stop-loss carriers who have entrusted my idea and have taken a leap of faith that the family monthly deductible would result in a better end result. And now you're saying to me, you want me to abandon that relationship to be able to get you to understand what I've been doing and what they've been helping me with? Not going to happen.